Just before we read scripture, let me make one quick announcement. We're reminded at this time of year that Jesus came into the world, and we learn that he came not to be served, but to serve. So to serve is Christ-like. And we've tried to make service here as efficient as possible. We've divided all the areas of service that help make Heritage Baptist Church run efficiently into a number of different teams. And all of those teams need help. There are sign-up sheets out in the lobby. We ask folks to sign up for a year to serve in one of these various capacities in Sunday school, nursery, audiovisual, worship setup, the music team, or the connect desk. And uh, you can talk to any of the people responsible for those teams. Their names are on the sign-up sheets out in the lobby. They can tell you what's involved. We especially need help in our uh, nursery and in our Sunday school teams. And uh, just a comment about Sunday school, you don't have to be a teacher to help with Sunday school. We have Sunday school helpers that are critical to uh, the smooth operation of uh, that time on Sunday mornings. So we would like to encourage you to take a moment to look at those sheets, speak to any of the team leaders. They can help you understand what's involved with their teams. And then in just uh, a few weeks, we'll have training for all those who've signed up so everybody knows exactly what to do. And it's a great way to imitate Christ as he came to serve and we reflect his likeness when we help to serve the body of Jesus Christ. Now, our scripture reading this morning is from the well-known passage in Isaiah chapter 9, just verses 6 and 7. It's a privilege to live on this side of this statement that was made centuries before the Lord Jesus came, so we know exactly who is being spoken of here. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us... A child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Well, this morning we're in part two of this four-part series for Christmas on Isaiah 9-6. And we're going to look at the second descriptive word of this son who is to be given, this child that is to be born, and that is mighty God. So let's pray together and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for giving us your son, for the child that was born in Bethlehem, that all the universe was reoriented at those moments to make it possible for him to come. The census was not taken by accident. The wise men, the magi were not warned or alerted by a star for no reason. That star was there by your placement. That stable was there by your placement. That end being crowded was your purpose. That census being taken was your plan. And it was also that the one who could come and could establish a new kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy, who could fulfill 
all the areas of the law that Adam failed to fulfill in the garden and that he could recreate a race, make a new people, a new kingdom who would reign under him that would spread over history and through time and one day be consummated not with the return of a child but with the return of a conquering king who will once and for all defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom on the earth. And the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth the way the knowledge or the way the waters cover the sea. We thank you for that prospect. We thank you that day is coming soon, that, we're, that that day is nearer now than when we first believed. And we pray that as we come to your word this morning, you will encourage us with the king who is on the throne. The one who is in control so that we, we don't need to fear, like, fear or feel like our lives are out of control. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever lost all the work on your computer while you've been working on it because the computer crashed? Well, if it hasn't happened to you yet, I hope it doesn't ever happen to you. But if it has happened to you, you know that overwhelming sense of dread and fear that comes over you in those moments, don't you? It's, it's sometimes expressed audibly. It's other times it's not expressed audibly. But whether it's expressed audibly or not, What shouts from us in those moments are, no! And our head will sometimes hit the desk or our hands will hit the desk because things have not turned out the way that we wanted to. And and the degree of intensity of that no is measured by the degree of the importance of the work that you lost, right? And how far along with it you were in the process. Well, we let out a lot of knows in our life, whether audibly or not. The line is too long at the grocery store. No. The test didn't come back the way we anticipated. No. Someone lets us down. No. An interruption occurs in our day. No. An accident occurs in our way. Or someone comes over and chooses to stay. No. All those no's have one source a lot of times. It has assaulted our desire and need for control. Imagine a man named Alan cruising down the road on his way home from work. But then he comes up on a road crew and an accident. Hopefully in which the road crew was not involved. And it holds up traffic. Now he's not going to get home in time to see the game he wanted to watch. So he walks in and when his wife goes to kiss him and welcome him home, he just brushes her off. He's angry because he missed the first half of the game. Imagine a girl named Beth. She's stressed. They just had to replace the family car and that's wiped out their savings. And now she's worried that they won't have enough money at the end of the month. And when her husband comes home with an expensive-looking bunch of flowers to cheer her up, she just bursts into tears. Imagine another man named Colin. Colin's getting very frustrated. He's trying to get a new job started, but everything seems to be going wrong. And as a result, he's getting very, very irritable with his children. Imagine Dorothy. She's lying awake at night thinking about her sister who's been struggling with postpartum depression. 
Dorothy's looked after her new niece a couple of times, but she has so much on her own plate because her husband's been out of work for two months after an automobile accident. She wishes she could do more to help, but she just feels so helpless. All these scenarios giving rise to anger and stress and irritation and helplessness can all be traced to a common source, the loss of control. But the point of the sermon this morning is that Jesus is great And that means that we don't have to be in control. Jesus is the mighty God of Isaiah 9, 6. So this morning, we're going to look at three points. First of all, our need for the mighty God. Second, the identity of the mighty God. And third, life under the mighty God. So our need, the identity, and life. First of all, our need. Before we dive into our immediate need, let's look at Israel here in this time in Isaiah as he's writing. This is a very dark period, as Pastor Jonathan reminded us last week in kicking off this series. This is a very dark period in the history of Israel. The year was approximately 725 B.C., and the northern kingdom of Israel is facing a very ominous and perilous situation from the north because an evil aggressive Assyrian empire is growing and expanding. And the powerful empire of Assyria was poised and ready to attack this morally bankrupt and militarily weakened Israel. Indeed, in 722 BC, merely three years later, Israel would be sacked, overrun, and crushed in humiliating defeat by the Assyrians. Loved ones were going to be brutally killed Families would be broken up and destroyed. The land would be devastated. Economic havoc would be rampant. And the once proud nation of Israel would be brought to its knees in shame, humiliation, and judgment. How did it get this way? How did Israel become so morally bankrupt? Well, Isaiah chapter 1 answers a lot of those questions for us. Israel's, it's really clear, is not believing God. As a whole, the nation as a whole is following after idols and their judgment is on its way. And this great nation is going to become a wilderness. That's the backdrop to the situation that Isaiah is addressing here. If you look at verses one and two again, you'll note Isaiah speaking of the gloom and darkness that's coming and that's already currently filling the land. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Obviously, there is gloom now. But there won't be with the son who is coming. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness, that's where they're currently living, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. So it's it's a metaphorical picture of what's going on spiritually in the nation of Israel at this time, which is they are in a deep deep darkness. They're in gloom and there's a time, this is a time of tremendous strife. We could say that they were losing control. Things were spinning out of control. And this is a time in history in which a promise like Isaiah is getting ready to give would have landed upon the believing remnant with great hope. Because in the midst of all this darkness, in the midst of this deep darkness and gloom, A light is coming. 
So in the midst of a fear of, of a complete loss of control, all that is secure, their families, their jobs, their home, their land, all of it is getting ready to be taken away. Can you imagine everything that they would lean on for security and hope and stability is getting ready to be stripped from them? Could you imagine how they would be responding if they weren't believing in God? They might wear themselves out with busyness and frustration and anxiety and fear and worry. They might cave in to suicidal thoughts because they have attempted to make wealth or security a bigger priority than God's kingdom. And it's all coming apart. They could be preoccupied with all that is getting ready to be taken away from them. We can respond the same ways. When we feel like life is coming unglued and things are starting to get outside of our control, we might wear ourselves out with the same kind of busyness and frustration. We might cave into worry or attempt to make security and wealth a bigger priority. Or we can become preoccupied with bills and the money can become our main obsession. All because we don't really believe that we have a mighty God who is in control so we don't have to be. So that's our need for the mighty God. Second point, identity of the mighty God. Who is this mighty God that Isaiah is talking about here in verse 6? Before I get to his identity, let's first of all take a moment just to think about the massive reversal that's going to take place that is coming In the midst of this great despair and hopelessness, they receive a word from God, a word from heaven that promises a reversal of what they know now. The gloom that they know is going to turn to rejoicing. The distress that they know is going to turn to joy. The oppression that they know is going to turn to a broken yoke. The darkness that they know would turn to light and the shadow of death would be overcome. So what's God's answer going to be? Well, this passage, the context of the crisis provides a message of hope. And again, it's very surprising because we get down to verse four. Let's read together. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Here's this great promise of a conquering warrior king. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. Doesn't that sound rather strange? All this military language, all this blood-bathed robes and garments and trampling feet and battle tumult and rods of the oppressor and yokes of burden and staffs on the shoulder. All that's going to be defeated because a child's going to be born? A child? The least powerful of any sort of human being? Behold God's ways. God says, in the midst of this great fearful expectation of military judgment that's coming against you as a nation, don't worry, a virgin's going to give birth to a baby. That's God's answer. But it just so happens, lest you fear, that this baby is going to be the mighty God himself. 
And the New Testament confirms this idea that this baby that is to be born, this light that is to come in the midst of darkness, will be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Applying verse 2, Matthew 4, 16 says, The people living in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Luke 1, verse 79 to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Luke 2.32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So this promised light that's coming, that's going to push back the deep darkness of his people is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a child who's going to do a victorious work for them on their behalf. For to us, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Luke 2, 11. Today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior. This child's birth is for his people, for the well-being of his people, for the saving of his people. And oh, how much we need this child to be born. Well, let's turn to this phrase, mighty God. That his name will be called Mighty God. That is, this child that is to be born, this son that is to be given, will be God Almighty. Will be God the warrior. Literally, the warrior God or the hero God. Obviously, what's being spoken about here is that this mighty God who is coming is going to be mighty to save his people from all that they are experiencing. He is able and strong and powerful to be the captain of their salvation. He is the warrior God who is mighty to come and mighty to save and will deliver his people. And we see this as this son who is born, the Lord Jesus, this son who is given, grows up and becomes, steps into this name more and more as he grows up. He stepped into this name from the very beginning of his life. Think about it. He was acknowledged as the mighty God before he was ever born. Merely as Mary was pregnant and Elizabeth was pregnant, there was already prophecy going back and forth about how great the son that Mary was going to give birth would be. The angel Gabriel is shorter of it. And then when he's born... He sends the literal political kingdom of the day, Herod, trembling. Okay, let's take a census right now because we got to get rid of this king. Animals and angels and people from far off lands worship him and acknowledge his coming. And then as this man grows up, This God-man, this warrior God, this God Almighty in human flesh, as he grows up, And he takes the field of Calvary with no cavalry at all, but merely humbly submitted to carrying the wood of his own cross to go engage the titan forces of sin, Satan, death, hell, wrath, and the grave. And when the dust of battle is over, The veil, it gets ripped in two and an empty tomb stands as an eternal monument to the victory of this mighty God. 
this hero God, this warrior God who was born for our salvation. He's a worthy defender who shepherds us from all of our conflict and shelters us from our fears. Now, I want to go back and illustrate in a scene between those two events, namely the birth of Christ and the death of Christ. And I want us to go to a scene around the Sea of Galilee and watch this mighty God at work, defeating all that would strip us of control, defeating what would cause us to fear the loss of control and asserting his rightful control over it. We're going to see this in Mark chapter 4 and 5. So would you hold your finger in Isaiah and go with me to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. We're going to spend just a few minutes looking at this mighty God at work. We're going to see that this mighty God, this Lord Jesus Christ, is mighty over all of life. He goes and demonstrates that he is the mighty God who is in complete control over every single realm. We start with the realm of the natural world. Look at verse 35. As we see this mighty God demonstrate his sovereign power and control over the natural realm. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said, Peace. Be still, and the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Mighty God over the natural realm. I mean, don't, don't the things that happen in nature cause our hearts to fear? I mean, just hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, and we see the destruction that occurs from the violent forces of nature. And yet, here we see this mighty God asleep in a boat that's capsizing and says, don't worry about it. Shh. And this hurricane dies. And then he remarks in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Well, that's his sovereignty over the natural world. Let's see it over the spiritual world. Chapter 1, verse 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, so this is morning, right next day, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. I mean, it's as if Mark is at pains to show us what the worst kind of spiritual and demonic oppression can do to a person. This is the worst that it can get. You got a guy who's feared by the town, who's suicidal, who can't be bound, who won't be stopped, 
who is determined at all points to unleash hell on himself and to others. And he couldn't be bound, not even with a chain, for he'd often bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched them apart and he broke them in pieces. And no one, no one, no one had the strength to subdue him. The strongest dudes in that town weren't able to take this guy out. All of them together. And he did this night and day. This is continual among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always, always, always crying out and bruising himself with stones. I mean, just a horrendous spiritual darkness and deadness. And yet, how does our mighty God respond? He comes on the scene, verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. (laughs) That's how he responds. The one who could not be subdued by an entire town before he even gets, uh, approaches the presence of the man and falls. Jesus doesn't even have to say a word. He doesn't have to speak anything before that dude's on the ground prostrate before him. And crying out with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And listen to this, verse 10. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Because we all know Jesus is sovereign over demons. Verse 13. So he gave them permission. Mighty God. The devil and his emissaries don't move an inch without the permission of this mighty God. And he makes all the spiritual host of Satan cower in fear before him. And then a most glorious thing happens. He eliminates the unclean spirits from the man, sends him into a herd of pigs who rush down into the stink bank of the sea and drown. The herdsmen flee. They come back. People come to see him. In verse 15, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, who, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Notice the fear, the fear of the disciples and now the fear of this town. Because they're in the presence of God. That's why there's fear. They have, they have, Jesus has literally stripped control out of their hands. The disciples, control was stripped. What was their answer? I'm afraid. Because that's how we respond when, fear, when control is taken away from us. The same thing with this. We've known this man, this man who's lived in the tombs and on the mountains. And we've seen how he's behaved and how... And we got used to that. But now that this man has come and eliminated that, we are deathly afraid. And they beg Jesus to not come back. They would rather have a demon-possessed man living in the tombs whom no one can shackle and no one to hold back than God in the flesh in their midst. But this man is fired up. Verse 19 Go home to your friends, Jesus says to the man, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Demon-possessed man into a raging evangelist. That's Christ. 
That's Christ. And that's our mighty God who is in control not only of the natural world, but also the spiritual world. But what about the physical world? What about sickness? Yeah, he's sovereign over that too. Next scene, verse 25. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no rather no better, but rather grew worse. Again, Mark painting a very real, deep, dire picture for us. Not, now, we got the spiritual picture in, in, in earlier in the chapter. Now we're getting the physical description. Just how bad off this woman was. Twelve years with a discharge of blood. Constant for twelve years. 365 days, is it better? No. 365 days later, better? No. 365 days later, all the way through 12 whole years. That's from birth to adolescence. That's a long period of time. And yet, it's not like she just didn't do anything about this. She went to physicians. She, and she suffered much under their care. No No legitimate physician, no doctor wants to hurt his patients, make them worse off than when they came. But this was her experience. The care that she had received did not result in her discharge being taken away or her suffering being removed. And here's the worst part. She'd given all of her money to this. And you think after 12 years spending all my money on this that I would be better. No, she's not only not better, she's worse off. She's not even where she was. Spending all her money for counter cures and actually causing it to be worse. But nevertheless, this mighty God is going to demonstrate his love and compassion and sovereignty over the physical realm. As she comes up to him, verse 28, she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Boom, gone, just like that. 12 years, worse off, done touching the fringe of a, of a, of a tunic of the mighty God. And it's gone. 12 years, wiped out, just like that. No more discharge, no more blood, no more doctor's fees, all well. In the midst of this, as he's caring for this woman and this crowd is rushing around him, the real mission he was on at the time, if you'll remember, was he's heading to the house of, a, of Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, because his daughter, his 12-year-old daughter, is sick and getting ready to die. And so he's on his way. He meets this woman with the discharge of blood. He takes care of her, and now he's on his way again in verse 35. But while he's still speaking, there comes from a ruler of the house who says, your daughter is dead. So he's on his way. She dies. So, the, so the, the people who are speaking to him say, why trouble the teacher any further, Jairus? She's dead. Just let him go. But overhearing what they said, he turns to Jairus and he says, puts, I can imagine just putting his hand on his shoulder and saying, Jairus, don't listen to anything they're saying. Only believe in me. Let's go. And so he goes, and lo and behold, when he enters the room, 
she's dead. And just, just look at the situation in verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. Awful. The most, I mean, 12-year-old girl, whole room full of commotion, wailing, and weeping. Could you imagine walking into that situation? He could probably hear it from the road. And then he gets in there. When he had entered, verse 39, he says, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Death is sleep to Jesus. It's just a nap. It's a 15-minute cat nap. That's all it is. And they laughed at him. That's not a, that's not a uh, you know, Jesus just told a joke laugh. <laughs> that's almost a mocking laugh. That's, you're ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Now we got a crazy man to deal with. We got a 12-year-old girl dead, and we got a crazy guy. Great. But he put them all outside. <laughs> And listen to how Jesus is tender here. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there with the child. So let's just get the family here. He could have done it by himself, but no, he invites in the parents and those who are with him, perhaps siblings. Verse 41, taking him by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. So we see this mighty God demonstrating his sovereignty over the natural world, over the spiritual world, over sickness and over death. Mark is painting a picture here, a very deliberate, intentional picture. These stories are not just sandwiched in here with no rhyme or reason. This all occurs around the lake over a weekend, just a, just a short period of time. And Jesus demonstrates before all who are paying attention that he is, in fact, the mighty God promised by Isaiah 9-6, that he would come and that he would demonstrate his sovereignty over all things. So what does that mean for us? Well, let's go back to Isaiah 9-6 as we get set to wrap up here and talk about life under the mighty God. So we've seen, we've seen the need for, now we see the identity of, and now we're going to come to life under the mighty God and talk about what life under this mighty God live by faith in him, is really like. First of all, look at Isaiah 9, 6, and we get a peek. The government, right in the middle, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government's going to rest on the shoulders of this mighty God and no one else. Now, lest we confuse political and spiritual government here, we need to be very careful of how we think about this kind of government. Jesus is by no means interested in asserting his political rule right now. 
Just read the Gospels. He's abundantly clear about that stuff. People are mistaken about him. They're like, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are we going to defeat Rome now? Or, you know, and Peter even tries to exercise that now. He says, Peter, put away your sword. My kingdom's not of this world. All that stuff. The government that he's talking about is the government that's right now spiritually being ruled in the church, his rule being asserted in his people in the church as he is Lord and cosmically, he is Lord and king over all things. But one day that will be realized and affected in this earth upon his second advent when he returns. And it's that government that Isaiah is speaking of here. The government at that point when he returns, when he comes back, there will be no other rival to him. <laughs> we won't be holding any more elections. All right? No more. Senate, gone. House of Representatives, gone. Supreme Court, gone. King Jesus, installed. Along with every other earthly government. ISIS, no more. So his rule will be universal, unending, and unparalleled. The child will become the king, the sovereign Lord. But listen, because he rules right now, by virtue of his resurrection and his ascension to the Father's right hand and sitting down and ruling over all things, because he rules right now, though our lives might appear to spin out of control, don't fear, church. He reigns over all, he rules over all, and he's working in all for our good. There's not a square inch of this entire cosmos, not to mention planet Earth, that will not and does not bow to his rule as he bends it all for our benefit. Here's what one writer said. This is part and parcel of the Christmas story. We see how God is willing to move heaven and earth to provide for his people. Matthew shows God influencing the stars in the sky to get foreign magi to Bethlehem so that they can worship him. It is implicit in scripture that all the mammoth political forces, without their even knowing it, are being guided by God, not for their own sake, but for the sake of God's little people, the little Mary and the little Joseph who have to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. God wields an empire to bless his children. The government's on his shoulders. So he's going to rule completely. So we don't have to fear that anything that happens to us is outside of his control. Listen, everything that happens to you is outside of your control. And if you think you have control of it, please repent of that mirage. So everything is outside of our control, but nothing is outside of his control. That's a way better place to live. Not only will he rule completely, but Isaiah says he's going to rule eternally as well. Look at verse 7. Of the increase, increase, I love that. Increase. It's only going to increase. No decrease. The increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. So it's going to increase and there's going to be no end to it. No one's voting him in. No one's voting him out. He has absolute control. And we're going to realize it more and more and more and more and more until it finally happens. He will rule eternally. Finally, he will rule definitely, definitely on the throne of David and over his kingdom, verse seven, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. From this time forth and forevermore. How do we know it's going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
Because God's got, God is fully invested in seeing his son reign over every inch of all that he has made. God's fully invested in that. Nothing less than the zeal of the Lord Almighty will bring all this to pass. His jealous passion is to establish the rule and reign of his son, whom he has given, and to establish that reign in such a way that he will be honored and vindicated now and forever. In heaven, there will be no confusion as to what Christmas is all about. Through all of time, God's burning passion, zeal, and holy jealousy is for one thing. The glory of his son in whom he takes delight. So great is God's love for his son that you can be certain. This king, who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, will rule completely, eternally, and definitely. God guarantees it. That settles it. Amen. The loss of control can lead us to respond in different ways. It can lead us to trust God who really is in control or attempt in our own strength to manufacture some mirage of control in harmful ways through manipulation or domination. But here's the, here's the, here's the application from the sermon this morning. By grace, we get to choose between the fantasy world in which we have control of our lives and the real world in which God's mighty son reigns. We get to choose that every day of our lives. It's not just a one-time decision. We get to wake up every day and surrender and center ourselves and our hearts on the fact that this mighty God rules and reigns completely, eternally, and definitely. And nothing and no one is ever going to change that unless they're more powerful than the zeal of God Almighty. So we can sit and we can rest as God's people and not have to be in control and this is, with this, I'll close. There's one other spot in Isaiah where this phrase, mighty God, is used. And it's in one chapter over. So if you'll look at Isaiah 10, I think it leads us to the application that we're supposed to have from this idea. Isaiah 10, verse 20 and 21. In that day, the remnant of Israel, translated to the New Testament, that's the church, so we can make this a legitimate application to ourselves. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. That's our application. Don't lean on yourself and what others do or can do for you. Lean on the Lord in truth. Because the other thing is a mirage. Jesus is great, so we don't have to be in control. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for centering us this morning with your word, for speaking to us and recalibrating our hearts and minds to your reign and rule, Lord Jesus, over all things. We pray that you would help us to live in such a way that we can demonstrate before a watching world that our God is not a God that we can control but a God who controls us, that we are joyfully submitted to because you rule and reign forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. My name is Mark Alvis. I'm a musician, artist, and designer in Tacoma. And this is my story. About four years ago, I married a beautiful girl named Brittany started working at a local company as a designer 
and really took on the idea that my destiny was mine. I believed that I was in control and I would reward, receive the rewards of how hard I worked and how many hours I put into it. I didn't believe God was in control. I believe he gave talents and he gave opportunities and it was up to me to capitalize on that. We've always wanted to have a family. We've always wanted to be parents. But I was concerned that with my current job situation and job stress and the financial climate that I wanted to wait to have kids until I had all that taken care of and, and worked out. Turns out we're expecting super awesome surprise. But even better than that, our first ultrasound, we found out we are going to have twins. Insane. Had no idea how we were going to afford it. God continued to say to me, I alone am trustworthy. I am worthy of your trust. Trust me. So I just had to take God at his word. I said, Christ, I know I can trust in you. I do not know how we're going to provide for these twins, but I know that you've got it covered. So we walked forward in that. Two weeks later, I lost my job. Coming at home after that was a really tough time, but again, the Holy Spirit kept saying to me, I alone am trustworthy. Trust me, I will provide. I am God and I am in control. A week later, we received $3,000 as an inheritance check from my grandmother's passing, totally unexpected. A week after that, we found out that Brittany was covered 100% under the state health care plan. The baby's pregnancy, birth, as well as their first year of life covered 100% every dime. I alone am trustworthy, Christ said. He provided every, every way. A week later, I got a phone call from an acquaintance saying, Mark, we have full-time work. We need a designer. It's a contract to hire position. What's your availability? I said, I'm free. So in a matter of two months, Christ had plucked me out of a poisonous work situation where I was hating people and hating life. He provided every step of the way. He supplied a debt-free platform. He canceled all of the debts that I had brought on ourselves. He had proved to me that He is God. He is in control. And He alone is trustworthy. God is great so that I do not have to be in control. If you're a guest with us and you have yet to fill out one of these little connect cards, please do that. We promise not to harass you. We're not a church that believes in harassment. So you'll probably get an email from one of the pastors or something welcoming you and thanking you for joining us, and that's about it. And uh, so if, you, if you're a guest and, and you'll take a, a chance to fill that out, that'd be great, and you can drop it off at our, at our table in the back in the lobby. Let me leave you with this word from Isaiah chapter 2, which promises what this kingdom and this coming of this mighty God will be like. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, 
neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen.